This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Jared Polis is the first openly gay man elected governor in the nation. News that made national headlines. Well, 26 years ago, Colorado was getting national attention for another reason. We lost a big fight in Colorado, but thanks to the hard work of all the people of Colorado, the Boycott Colorado movement is working, and it's strong, and we're going to win our freedom there eventually. That's an activist at the 1993 March on Washington for LGBT rights, rallying people behind a boycott of Colorado. See, the year before, voters here passed Amendment 2, which outlawed civil rights protections for gays and lesbians. It earned Colorado a nickname, the hate state. So what moved Colorado from that to electing an openly gay governor? Well, many point to the political and philanthropic work of the Gill Foundation, founded by businessman Tim Gill in the wake of Amendment 2. Gill and his husband, Scott Miller, co-chair the foundation. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. It's good to be here. Tim, in that clip, we hear the outrage in the broader LGBT community over Amendment 2, which had been approved by 53 percent of Colorado voters. Take us back. What was your reaction to Amendment 2? What do you remember about that election night? I remember getting angry. I remember getting depressed. And I remember thinking that, you know, 53 percent. So presumably we had, I think, 300 employees in Colorado. And I know a number of them voted for Amendment 2. They voted against the civil rights of the person who was paying their salaries and the civil rights of people who were their coworkers. This is at your software company. Yeah, absolutely, at Quark. And so it felt not distant, like someone out there had voted for Amendment 2, but people close to me had done so. Absolutely. What was that night like? I've heard others retell it. I know there was a march down to the Capitol. Did you sort of do anything high profile or... No, there was a march and I I didn't go. I think I just was home thinking about it and trying to decide what I wanted to do. Did you think about moving to a place that, I don't know, you might consider more gay-friendly, New York, San Francisco or something? Oh, not at all. I mean, just because you're invaded doesn't mean that you leave. It means that you fight back. Invaded is the term you use. I kind of do, actually. It's a, a, a little like invasion and it's a little not because when you think about it, 47% of people voted in favor of us, which given that you know two decades prior, it probably would have been much, much different. So we just had to move 3%. And how do you move mm-hmm. you know 3.1% of people? It sounds like you took some hope in the 47%. I don't think I thought of hope at the time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you were a software entrepreneur, a founder of Quark, a highly successful company. What made you think that you should be the one to take on this civil rights issue? Because I think that wasn't a role you were necessarily in, right? No. I mean, I had actually been the office manager for Boulder Gay Liberation during college, but that was kind of my last exposure to gay rights because I had my company. My business partner, who was Persian, actually had death threats and so on during the Iran hostage crisis. And so he felt and he told me that I should commit a million dollars to convince people that discrimination was wrong. And so now, twenty, nearly 25 years later, it's been 350 almost million dollars that we've committed to convince people that discrimination is wrong. $345 million philanthropically and probably an additional $100 million that we've spent on politics. Well, I want to make that distinction between the political giving yes. and the philanthropic giving. 
because it is under the banner of the Gay and Lesbian Fund for Colorado, which on its face sounds like a a pure gay advocacy group, right? That's been a lot of the giving philanthropically to groups that are not necessarily associated with gay causes. Is there strategy involved in that? The Gay and Lesbian Fund uh, for Colorado was a creation of Tim's uh, in response to Amendment 2 and the fact that two-thirds of the people in Colorado at the time were saying that they didn't know someone who was LGBT. And so Tim decided that he would start with his first philanthropic dollars, giving money to mainstream causes under the moniker Gay and Lesbian Fund for Colorado. And in so many ways, it forced local communities and organizations to reconcile how they felt about LGBT rights. And in some cases, organizations, including organizations here in town that you never would have thought, rejected the money because they didn't want to put up the Gay and Lesbian Fund for Colorado on their donor list. That had so much stigma then. Yeah. I think when people have to have a conversation, when they have to reconcile what their beliefs are, that's the greatest impact I think we've had over the course of the 25 years of the foundation. If not names, could you tell us the kinds of groups that said we want nothing to do with that back then? You know, there's no benefit um, to remembering or, or talking about the organizations that rejected the money. People can be our future friends, even if they disagree with us now. And to get that 3% and ultimately to get to the 60% of approval rating that we have for marriage uh, across the country, we had to accept that there were going to be people who had rejected us that are now on our side. And uh, it's a terrible thing to live with, you know, holding animus and, and anger towards those people who didn't initially fall on your side. Some of the refusals were from like local arts organizations, And in some cases, it wasn't that they refused the money. We had one organization that lost their – took the money and lost their executive director because the executive director didn't want to take it. We had organizations where board members quit. And it was interesting that they thought of money coming from a gay group as political money. But if it came from a Jewish group or an African-American group, they wouldn't have thought it was political. Mm. So this was just about a learning process and – It took us years. In some cases, virtually all of the organizations that at one point refused money have taken it since. I just want to say for transparency's sake that uh, the Gay and Lesbian Fund for Colorado has supported and continues to support Colorado Public Radio. So again, not just LGBT organizations. I mean, you recently gave $400,000 for STEM education in Englewood, for example. Were there also donors who were afraid to declare themselves as gay donors. A huge number of the larger donations all said anonymous. And they did that because in some cases they might be disinherited. In some cases they were afraid it would impact their business. And so one of the things we did is we built an organization to collect those donors together so that they would have a peer group. And so that by having a peer group, they could, A, discuss kind of what things were very important to them, but B, so that they could become essentially more comfortable with being out about their giving. One of my very first grants was actually a challenge grant for $50,000, and they had to get three matches, and it took years literally to match that. And now if I did something like that, it would be matched in hours. You mentioned marriage, Scott. And and so I want to talk just a little bit about the evolution of that issue in Colorado, because at one point there was a law on the books here banning 
gay marriage. It was banned back in like 1972 when the Boulder County clerk, a gay couple came in and asked for a marriage license. The Boulder County clerk couldn't see any reason not to issue it, and so they issued it. This is Clayla Rorex in Boulder. Yeah. So the fun thing about that was that it created all this furor, and a guy brought in his horse and said he wanted to marry his horse. And they talked about that, and they came back and said, I'm sorry, that horse isn't of age. So eventually, it was banned in state law. And then when all the furor happened around the Hawaii marriage decision and so on, it was banned again. And then finally, there was a constitutional amendment that banned marriage. So we had three marriage bans on the books in Colorado. Eventually, that eased, and you had, uh, I know in the city of Denver, there were domestic partnerships. There was a sort of middle ground law as well in Colorado uh, before full marriage rights. I wonder if I could have you each reflect on what winds up being more important in moving the marriage needle. Do you think it was the philanthropic giving that recast people's perceptions of what it was to be gay and lesbian? Or do you think it was the political giving? Or is it just that you can't have one without the other to move the needle? Oh, my goodness. Uh, Thinking about marriage, it was a culmination of so many things. First and foremost, you have to think about the power of your friends, family, and coworkers coming out and living their authentic selves um, with their family and at work. Kind of the Harvey Milk approach. Correct. Well, yeah, the Harvey Milk in California said the, the most sort of consequential act you can do is to simply come out so people know gay people. So that's a, obviously the most important component of this, but you have to have organizations both uh, on the 501c3 philanthropic side and uh, political organizations, PACs, uh, 527s, uh, 501c4 is it's a it's a combination of a lot of different kinds of organizations, but you have to have an education with government officials, people who are in power, people who need to be educated. They need to show be shown that their constituents care about these issues. And I'm so immensely proud to have been with Tim for 16 years and be by his side and to see how effective that component of his life has been. And when you say effective, I gather you point to the Democratic takeover in this past midterm. Well, I think what I point to first is the 2015 decision uh, in the Supreme Court for Obergefell and in legalizing marriage and for us finally being married in our home state. We had a civil union, but civil unions were not the same as marriage. And there was like a lot of legal paperwork to kind of create Correct. A yeah. skim milk marriage, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. to quote a certain Supreme Court justice. In reflecting on the 2018 election, for me, I grew up on the Western Slope. I'm from Grand Junction. And to have thought when I was in high school or middle school and struggling with my sexuality of having a gay governor who has his partner on the stage on the night he's given his victory speech, um, what a wonderfully profound moment. How would you reflect on the marriage evolution, uh, Tim Gill, and in the last election? You know, so a lot of things made LGBT rights possible and made marriage possible. And so the first one was changing hearts and minds. And you can do that with philanthropic giving. What happens, of course, is that the broad populace accepts something and then the politicians are perhaps a little more timid, sometimes like very timid. And so in those cases... You have to go in and you have to work with politicians 
and get them to support you so that you can get a law passed. And that takes political dollars. But if you look at what happened with marriage, in some cases it was court decisions. In some cases it was being passed through the legislature. In other cases it was voted in by popular vote. So there was no one pattern that applied to every single state. Every single state was absolutely unique in how they came to that decision. So, Tim, you were in Colorado the night Amendment 2 passed, and then you were in Colorado the night Jared Polis was elected. How was that for you? That was a really spectacular night. I mean, we had victories all across the board. Jared's victory was one of the sweetest. Let me just throw in that Brianna Titone became the first openly transgender member of the Colorado legislature in that same election. We've talked a lot about uh, what you see as, as progress, as advancement. And there is absolutely a faction in this state that in the face of, of these changes is worried and points to the trampling, I think they see it as, on their religious rights, that laws are changing them to hold beliefs they don't feel they want to hold. I think of the masterpiece cake shop case. Uh, Would you speak to them? Certainly. Our Constitution is very clear about protecting religious rights. And that has not changed. That cannot change. No one can be forced to hold a belief about anything. But I think in a civil society, we work because we understand that there are a variety of different kinds of people. If you have a business, you don't know who's going to walk in. And if you're going to be a good business, if you're going to be a successful business, you're going to try to service all of the clients. You're not going to try to pick and choose the ones that happen to match your own belief. And for the most part, that that works. Very occasionally, we see cases where people are upset about that. But in the end, no one's being forced to change their religion, to change their beliefs. No society could work if that were the case. If I can add on. Please do, Scott, because there have been quite a few legal victories thus far for those in favor of religious freedom in these instances. This is certainly the next frontier, Ryan, of the conversation that we have to have with people. This God versus gay uh, narrative that it has been somewhat constructed by some really clever legal organizations on the right is, is disingenuous because you need to look no further than the makeup of the LGBT community and how many millions of them are actually people of faith. We haven't demonstrated that. Similarly, how we we needed to come out uh, at work that we had partners and that we had husbands and to our families, we also need to embrace the fact that so many LGBT people are also people of faith. Do I hear you saying that there needs to be coming out, but coming out as religious or, or people of faith? I think we need to continue to demonstrate, outside of sexuality, what we have in common rather than what differentiates us. Uh, and, and so I, I guess for you, the quest continues to build a fuller picture of what it is to be a gay person. Our work will never be done, and I think we will have to protect the gains that we've made, and we're going to have to continue to work uh, even harder to get non-discrimination passed in the uh, 28 states that we still have work to do. We have a lot of education to do around the dangerous work that exists around conversion therapy and that that's still allowed in 36 states. I think including Colorado. Including in Colorado. The bill to ban conversion therapy has has failed numerous times. And I think 
if you were to ask us what our what our top priority would be, having a rational conversation finally around the dangers of conversion therapy uh, ranks at the top. Gentlemen, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. Tim Gill and his husband, Scott Miller, co-chair the Gill Foundation, which has advocated for LGBT rights since its founding in 1994. That was in response to Colorado's Amendment 2. That law was eventually struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court. Fast forward, and the state's openly gay governor, Jared Polis, will be sworn in January 8th. And again, for transparency's sake, CPR does receive support from the Gill Foundation's Gay and Lesbian Fund for Colorado. At a time when the administration questions climate science and relaxes emission standards, Colorado's largest utility is apparently headed in the opposite direction. Excel has vowed to be carbon-free by 2050, and Excel says that goal will not raise customers' bills. Alice Jackson is president of Excel's Colorado operations. Alice, welcome to the program. Hi, nice to be here today. It's important to note that when you say carbon-free by 2050... Uh, it doesn't mean Excel will run exclusively on renewable energy, right? I mean, in layman's terms, explain the difference and why the company chose this route. No, that's absolutely correct. So if you think about the different types of renewable energy, most common that people think of are wind and solar. Yeah. Um, but in addition to that, you also have hydro. Um, but those resources, while they're carbon zero, you also have other resources that are carbon zero, such as nuclear. You also have technologies that have been developing, battery storage to supplement those renewables, as well as carbon capture from our existing natural gas and our fossil-based generation. The other thing is, is we sit here today and we know just 10 years ago, technology that we have in our hands and in our pockets, we have such computing power that we used to call phones, right, that we carry around every single day. Mm. Who knows what's going to develop over the next uh, 30 years, uh, you know, as we move towards 2050 and looking at what could else be used for generation on a carbon-free basis. And so that's the distinction between renewables and carbon-free. Uh, it will obviously be a mix of both of those. Absolutely. For Excel, you mentioned nuclear. Mm-hmm. Uh, people's ears might perk up at that. Uh, To what extent do you think nuclear power might be uh, part of the grid going forward? So remember, Excel Energy operates across eight states here in the United States, from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan down to the southern borders of New Mexico. So, and right, Texas too. <laughs> absolutely, Texas, North and South Dakota, uh, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. So a number of states, and we already have nuclear facilities in our Minnesota jurisdiction, okay. and so we have lots of um, experience with those facilities. But there continues to be research in this space, and what we're really saying with the announcement that we made last week and our commitment to the zero carbon future is we're going to bet on technology and. The fact that it's going to find a way to be economic for our customers and be zero carbon. And be economic for our customers. I think what you're saying there is that it won't in and of itself raise rates. How do you guarantee that? Well, it's not something that you absolutely sit back and guarantee. Uh, But when you look at the fact that our system, you know, we build generation and that generation has a certain life. It's like buying a car. Uh, When you buy your car, you don't expect that car to be the only car you own your entire lifetime. You're going to have to replace it a couple of times as you go through that life cycle. So with our generation, it's the same thing. You build a generation facility, it's going to have a certain number of years associated with it. Typically wind and solar, you're looking at between 20 and 25 years is what 
those you count on. Okay. And then for um, our existing like natural gas, coal uh, systems, you're talking a longer period of time, like 60 years. Uh, so, But those come to an end of life, right? Just like we have a couple of the facilities here in Colorado that are coming to end of life. You've got to replace them. Otherwise, you don't have the generation you need to meet your customers' uh, consumption. So we're going to be looking at that over time going, okay, what can we replace them with that has zero carbon generation associated with it that's more cost effective than what was in place before? And indeed, you are retiring coal plants Mm -hmm. and you have plans uh, to retire natural gas plants at this point or not? So those are always in the timeline when you build them. You look out and you go, okay, where's the 50 years? When does that end? So yes, there's already plans to retire natural gas plants. The question is, is what's going to come in and replace those? Um, Is it another natural gas plant that perhaps has carbon capture on it, uh, which is a technology that we'll be looking at and following? Because one of the things about renewables is they're typically intermittent means that we can't control when the wind blows or when the sun shines. You can forecast it, and so you can get pretty close. But you still need some dispatchable zero-carbon resources to fill that gap when, say, you don't have enough wind or you don't have enough sun. Okay, and the question is, what will that be? And what I'm hearing then is that it's, it's not a guarantee that rates won't rise as a result, but that will absolutely be part of your calculation about what you are replacing those future power plants with. I want to contrast your goal at Excel with that of the governor-elects. Jared Polis wants Colorado to run on 100% renewable by 2040. That's a decade earlier than your uh, zero-carbon goal. So, like, who... Who comes out on top here? (laughs) Well, our customers, quite frankly, with either of those goals. Um, Our customers are going to benefit from lower carbon in the environment, um, regardless of which goal you're talking about. Is the governor-elect's goal reasonable? In other words, you have the state's largest utility setting uh, what I think some would call a less stringent goal. I would argue that it's not necessarily a less stringent goal. What we are looking at is we're looking at, okay, what do we need in order to manage the three components that we talk about all the time? Number one being reliability. If we don't have lights on, business isn't operating. You and I wouldn't be on the air right now. Uh, And so that means that we have to make sure that that's one of our number one basics, um, you know, foundational pieces of operating. Okay. And quickly, the other two. Second, cost. Uh, We have to make sure that it's affordable for every single customer on our system because we serve the lowest of low-income customer and the highest of high-income customer and every business in between. And then third is sustainability, looking at how do we make this transition in an effective manner while we're continuously keeping our eye on the prize of driving down the emissions on our system. Um, I guess I'm not clear still on Mm -hmm. which plan is going to come to fruition. Well, you know, time will tell on that because what we're looking at is the science and technology. If we can beat 2050, we're going to beat 2050. It's not a matter of we're going to hold back. Um, If technology advances faster and we can show an economic way, we're going to get there earlier than 2052. How much is climate change driving this decision from Excel? think it's a combination, right? Uh, So we don't believe climate science should be a political discussion. It is a economic discussion for us. When we look at the cost effectiveness of these resources on our system, we look forward to adding them. We started down this path over a decade ago, and we have resources on our system that are much more expensive that are wind and solar than existing today. Um, We're talking about we went from 6.9 cents per kilowatt hour down to what we just recently acquired through the Colorado Energy Plan this year is one and a half cents per kilowatt hour for our wind. So significant cost reductions. We want to be smart about this and make sure that our customers get to see the benefit. Okay. I want to go back to my question. Sure. How much is climate change driving these decisions? I understand economics are a part of it, but like in an Excel boardroom. Yeah. Uh, are you talking about concerns around climate change? We absolutely bring that into our boardrooms and talk about what the impact is and make sure that it's something that we're looking at and going, okay, what is 
what can we do that makes sense for our customers in order to address these particular issues? Because there's the economics of which power you choose, but there's also the economics of what climate change might bring on your grid system, what changes in Uh, you know, water and its availability bring in hydro, for instance. So I I suppose it's really costs on both ends. Agreed. Um, You know, we look at it across the board. Remember, we operate in rural areas that are very arid. We operate in um, municipal areas that aren't so arid, where we have plentiful water. So we really do have to look across our system as to what's the most reasonable and what's the economic. Okay. And back to the economic question, I think there's a lot of argument over whether renewables are cheaper than fossil fuels these days. Can you, in layman's terms, tell us where that stands right now? Sure, absolutely. So I'll give you specifics for Colorado because I think it's important for the people in Colorado to understand exactly what those numbers look like. Great. So today, for our natural gas on our system, um, we operate between 2.7 cents per kilowatt hour and 4 cents per kilowatt hour. Okay. Coal on the system, 2.7 cents as well. I'm just going to reiterate this as we go along. Okay, so natural gas up to 4 cents per kilowatt hour. Yep. Coal again? 2.7. 2.7. Yes. Wind today, that's new wind acquired, one and a half cents. You heard me mention that just before. That's right. The average wind on our system right now, though, is around four cents per kilowatt hour. Because remember, we started acquiring it back 10 years ago when the prices were a little bit higher, and we've acquired it throughout time under the Renewable Energy Standard Program here in Colorado. Solar is also, we have good news about the pricing associated with it. A couple of years ago, we got solar at over 5.5 cents per kilowatt hour. Now, in the Colorado Energy Plan that was approved earlier this year, you can get that same solar for about two and a half to three cents per kilowatt hour. So you can see how it's cost competitive. Now, the wind and the solar both have the benefits of some tax credit incentives. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so that means that that one and a half cent uh, per kilowatt hour, that's what our customers pay for the wind. Uh, But it actually has a benefit of 2.4 cents per kilowatt hour, roughly, uh, from the federal government uh, in order to bring down that price. So you can see how the cost competitiveness is getting much more in line with our fossil based resources. And that's why it makes so much sense for us to add it to the system for our customers. And you think that that price will be driven down further as we go along? So as wind, as far as wind goes, we think we're probably at the bottom of the cost for wind right now. Interesting. But we do think that there's more opportunities and advancements on solar in order to see those prices come down. And that comports with uh, some of the national findings and the research that's being done by agencies to follow those prices specifically. Okay. You mentioned this in passing earlier that one of the newer technologies to address climate change in particular is carbon capture and storage. Uh, At a fossil fuel plant, it essentially prevents carbon dioxide from entering the atmosphere. Uh, But it's early days. Critics certainly point to how expensive carbon capture is. Uh, Talk to me about Excel's relationship with carbon capture. So as of right now, we don't have any carbon capture facilities on our system, but it is a technology that we're going to pay close attention to as we move forward. Just like we were talking about wind, 10 years ago, it was 6.9 cents per kilowatt hour, obviously out of the money as compared to natural gas or as compared to coal. But today it's come down to one and a half. That's because of scale, size, investment, um, interest in looking at, you know, where it's come from and where it can go. And so the same thing can happen with these other technologies that maybe aren't economic today, whether it's deep uh, geothermal, uh, not economic today. It's small modular reactors, which is nuclear, not economic today. Carbon capture, not economic today. But that doesn't mean it won't be in the next 20 to 30 years when we really need to add it to the system. So you are investing in research or plan to? We partner with laboratories. We pay attention to what's going on in other areas. And then we're also um, part of what's called the Energy Impact Partners, which is a variety of utilities that come together and make investments in um, technologies to lo- in companies in order to advance specific technologies we think will work on our grid. So does some of what I pay in my Excel bill go to research? 
Actually, it doesn't right now. Um, Other than one small program we have here in Colorado called the Innovative Clean Technology Program. Um, And we've done two main projects through that here in Colorado. I'm such, okay, we're going to have to wrap up there. Absolutely. But but right now, what I pay in my bill does not directly go to research, is what I'm hearing you say. All right. Alice Jackson, president of Excel's Colorado Operations, talking about that utility's plan to be 100% carbon free in about 30 years. The 2018 election brought Democrats to power in the U.S. House and put the GOP in the minority. We are curious how that changes Congressman Ken Buck's life. He was reelected to the 4th District, which is essentially the eastern third of the state. And Representative, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Let's start with the possibility of a government shutdown. That's says President Trump and Democrats fight over money for border security and more of a wall at the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, to you, is a shutdown a reasonable bargaining chip for the wall? No, I don't think it is. I, I think that uh, Chuck Schumer is absolutely wrong in what he's doing. And I think another Schumer shutdown would be uh, really unfortunate, especially right before Christmas. I think sending federal workers home uh, for Christmas without knowing uh, when and, and if they'll have a job uh, is is wrong. And I think the Senate should grow up. I, I think the Senate should uh, take its responsibility seriously. And uh, Americans want border security. They want, uh, you, you refer to it as a wall, and uh, most of us talk about border security, but uh, it is clear that uh, the, the Senate Democrats are acting irresponsibly, and, and I hope they are shamed into uh, a, a very, very small uh, uh, price to pay for the wall and to uh, really enhance border security and, and get this country moving forward on a very important issue. Let me say that we heard Nancy Pelosi just the other day refer to this as the Trump shutdown. So uh, the various parties trying to assign the shutdown to the other party here. And you say that my words are the wall, but those are actually the, the, the president's words that he wants a wall. And the second part of his promise is that Mexico will pay for it. Something he reiterated this morning on Twitter. His logic is that the U.S. will benefit from the renegotiated trade. You're talking about Trump. Are you here to talk about what I'm thinking? I'm, I'm missing something. Oh, well, let me finish the question, Congressman, and then... Uh... That wasn't a question. You were giving a speech. Do you want to talk to me about uh, priorities in Congress? I, I absolutely do. If I, if I could just... I was getting to the question. Um, so uh, on the wall... Uh, the president's logic is that the U.S. will benefit from the renegotiated trade agreement with Mexico and, in a way, reimburse itself for the wall. And my question for you is if if you buy that argument uh, from the president. I think that the lack of border security costs Americans uh, money every day. And it costs Americans money in terms of having to uh, educate people who are in this country illegally give people health care who are in this country illegally, um, uh, have enforcement mechanisms in place uh, to try to enforce our laws regarding people who are in this country illegally. And I think that we will see savings based on having a secure border. I do not know uh, the impact uh, at this point of a future trade agreement because there are so many Uh, variables in the trade agreement, but it is clear that we need to uh, have a strong trade agreement with our our neighbors. We need to help them build their economies as we build our economy. And hopefully by, by, uh, through uh, aid to 
uh, uh, countries in our own hemisphere, as well as uh, strong trade agreements with countries in our own hemisphere, we will build up the economies throughout our hemisphere and reduce the need for people uh, to try to immigrate illegally into this country. I hear you mentioning essentially what you believe is the root cause then of some of that immigration, which is unrest in those countries in our hemisphere. Well, I think the root cause of of the illegal immigration uh, is the uh, the desire for individuals to improve their uh, economic uh, standing. The the idea that there is uh, asylum, asylum is, is... uh, relevant uh, and, and warranted in, in a very, very small fraction of the cases of individuals coming into this country. The, the vast majority of individuals that come to this country come here because they want greater economic opportunity. If they did it uh, legally, if they went through the legal process, I think we all would welcome uh, people who help strengthen this country's economy. But doing it illegally is something that we can't tolerate. Uh, Congressman Buck, how does your work as a lawmaker change uh, once you become a member of the minority party in 2019? Yeah, it's a great question. I haven't been in the minority yet um, as uh, a legislator. I've only been here for four years and uh, I've been in the majority, although uh, it often feels like I am in the minority of the majority because uh, there are far too many Republicans who want to spend too much money, who want to uh, overregulate our economy, who want to uh, act like Democrat lights, and uh, we have a serious problem in this uh, in this body with with people who don't understand the role of the federal government um, as it relates to the states and the role of the federal government in in our economy. And so, um, I don't know. I think there has been a conspiracy between Republicans and Democrats to spend too much money to uh, help their friends. And I'm not sure how much that changes. Uh, There will certainly be hot-button issues that uh, the focus will change. But in terms of the overall day-to-day work here, I I fear that uh, there there is very little change on the horizon. That's fascinating. And I just want to say that you're a part of the Freedom Caucus, which is a group of conservative lawmakers. You're also a member of something called the Reformers Caucus. It's bipartisan, created to push bipartisan reform to the legislative process, uh, presumably to address some of the frustrations you just voiced there. Could you give us an example of something that that caucus might hope to change that could make a big difference in Congress and and perhaps for our country? Sure. One of the problems we have in the uh, Congress is we have what we call closed rules, where uh, leadership decides what the bill will be. Uh, The bill doesn't even have to go through committee. Uh, and leadership puts a bill on the floor, and there is no ability for legislators to uh, to offer amendments uh, to that legislation. The, the spending bill that we've been uh, discussing, the, the, the reason why we may have a, a shutdown in, in government is going to be uh, a closed rule. People won't be able to get up and uh, offer amendments, thoughtful amendments, amendments that would make the bill stronger, mm-hmm. Um, if we don't uh, have an open rule. And, and unfortunately, we, we just do too much of that. But that's one of the major uh, uh, problems that, that Republicans and Democrats see in how the leadership of both parties uh, operate this place. You used the phrase hot-button issue earlier, and I have to think that the question of 
the congressional relationship with the president right now is among them. So on on Wednesday, President Trump's personal, former personal attorney, Michael Cohen, was sentenced to three years in prison for what the judge called a veritable smorgasbord of fraudulent conduct, uh, specifically breaking campaign finance laws, tax evasion, lying to Congress. Uh, You said, Ken Buck, earlier this year that the special counsel investigation has gone beyond its original scope and that President Trump shouldn't be held to a perfect standard. I wonder if anything about Cohen's conviction changes uh, your perception of this. Well, it's interesting. I'd have to review that statement. I do not know where... Uh, the special counsel's investigation has gone. Uh, I I think they have been investigating for a long time. I think the the original scope of the investigation was limited to whether there was collusion between the uh, the Russian uh, government and the Trump campaign. Um, That's my understanding of the uh, scope of the investigation. The, The plea uh, and, and prosecutions that I've seen uh, are, are often unrelated. Now, I, I don't have a problem with building a case, and I have certainly been part of, of uh, prosecutors' offices that have built cases based on prosecuting people for unrelated crimes as long as they have relevant information and can further the investigation. But that's what I think uh, needs to be focused on is, is there, was there collusion in the 2016 campaign between the Russian government and the Trump campaign? That's the question that was originally posed and should be answered. If we uh, assign uh, a dozen prosecutors and a few dozen federal agents and we bring the full weight and force of the federal government uh, to examine every aspect of someone's life, we will find a crime. There are uh, thousands and thousands of federal crimes and, and tens of thousands of state crimes that can be charged uh, through uh, the federal, uh, uh, by the federal government as crimes under federal law, that uh, uh, no United States citizen could possibly avoid. So, so the question isn't, has President Trump ever done anything wrong in his life? The question is, was there collusion between the Russian government and the Trump campaign? Congressman, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Republican Ken Buck reelected in Colorado's 4th Congressional District, and for the first time, he'll return to Washington with the minority party in the House. Up next, schools as a growing player in mental health. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. They said, go, go see Dr. Dahl. I'm Carla Walker from Colorado Public Radio Classical, and that's conductor and lecturer Scott O'Neill, my co-host in the CPR Performance Studio for a new podcast exploring the life and work of one of the great composers, Sergei Rachmaninoff. Rachmaninoff may be the best example, maybe the only example, of a composer who overcame severe writer's block with the help of hypnosis. He'd walk down the street to Nikolai Dahl's house, lie back in a deep, comfortable armchair, and Dahl would speak to him in his soft, hypnotic voice. You will begin to write your concerto. You will work with great facility. The concerto will be of an excellent quality. Hypnosis worked. Rachmaninoff was able to write his second piano concerto, the middle movement of which is absolutely stunning. It starts in this still, dark C minor. And very quickly, it turns to a warm, comforting E major. 
Support for CPR's great composers wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks to CPR's supporting members who make digital content like this possible. Learn more at CPR.org. It's Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. Students with mental health problems are nine times more likely to be at risk for suicide. It's one reason the Colorado Health Foundation hosted a conference this week focused on the behavioral health of children in the classroom. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine attended and joins us now with what's being done to address this and what the gaps are. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Ryan. A fundamental question to start with, why are schools such a big focus when it comes to kids and mental health? Well, the median age for onset of most disorders is quite young, so the earlier you intervene, the better your outcomes. No-show rates in average outpatient clinics are 50%, and it's hard to get people to return, but children are more than eight times more likely to complete mental health treatment while they're in schools. Oh, interesting. So how prevalent are mental health disorders in schools? Well, take a classroom of 25 students. One in five have some kind of mental health problem. One in 10 suffer from a mental health problem with severe impairment. Only half will get the services they need. And Colorado ranks 33rd in the nation in terms of prevalence of mental illness and access to care for youth. Why is it so difficult to get students the help they need? Well, schools are incredibly complex microorganisms, you could say. Adolescent psychology is super complex, and we live in a society that's changing really quickly. But first, in Colorado, you can't escape lack of funding and the role that plays. Uh, Here's Andrew Romanoff with Mental Health Colorado. For Colorado to meet national recommended ratios in terms of the number of mental health professionals per school, we would require twice as many school nurses, counselors, and psychologists, and roughly nine times as many school social workers as we have right now. My goodness, but that's a familiar tune, not enough resources. Yes, but he does point out that 10 of 11 communities that had mental health funding ballot measures this November passed them. Uh, Youth played a big role in passing some of those. How much is happening in schools, though? That's a real question mark. While every child gets health and vision screening, Hmm. few get mental health screenings. But, uh, for example, Denver is experimenting with this. Uh, It's being piloted in a couple of schools with really successful results, getting students the resources they need. All right. There were some students at the conference you attended. Do they feel safe at school and are adults trying to build their coping skills, you know, in the face of depression, for instance. Yeah. One student said another student recently brought a gun to school, but he was caught outside. And she says teachers handled it really well. They have emergency drills down pat. But in terms of mental health, she thinks there's still a lot to do. Here's Hero Dolman. She's a high school student who sits on the Brighton Youth Commission. I told the teacher that I had major depressive disorder, and they sort of just like, okay, and left. (laughs) I think training teachers to kind of know how to deal with that sort of situation is really important, whether it's to give advice or just to like listen, I think it's really important. Another student, Sasha Miller, who sits on a subcommittee of the Colorado Youth Advisory Council, said there were recently a couple of youth suicides in her town of Erie. And, you know, it's brought the community together. But she says really four counselors in a big high school is not enough. And in a small town like Erie. Personally in Erie, we might have nine dentist offices in our small town, but we have nothing for mental health. And we have no bus system. We have one bus that goes to Boulder and back that runs twice a day. So we don't really have that access to get help if we need it. I understand that Sasha has tried using the safe-to-tell statewide hotline. 
You can report threats anonymously or maybe flag students who are suicidal. Uh, But there have been mixed results. Yeah, she says in her cases, it's resulted in a police van at someone's home, which isn't always the most helpful option with a vulnerable youth. So she and others feel it's crucial that all school staff get training on what to do with youth in crisis. Karen McNeil Miller of the Colorado Health Foundation says many youth tell her that uh, they're not comfortable talking to their parents about this. And I say, why wouldn't you tell your parents And they go from the, well, it would just be weird. It would just be weird to talk to my dad about that to the other extreme where a young lady said, because then my mom would find a way to make it my fault. And that's why panelists say it's really teachers, bus drivers, support staff, anyone on the front line needs training. Administrators need to create a culture where mental health issues can be discussed openly as, as early as elementary school. In any case, there's there's a question here really about stigma for mental health, Jenny. Yeah, So some schools are experimenting with creating what's called positive youth development clubs. So you noticed, Ryan, the title, that's that's pretty, pretty positive. And it's a way to help connect youths to peers and caring adults. Scott Lowe-Murray heads up Sources of Strength. It's a nonprofit that works in schools to prevent suicide. And it does that by increasing what are called help-seeking behaviors. This is important. He says vulnerable students hear the narrative in the news media and social media, rising suicide rates, sad images, shocking stories. And they say, yeah, that's me. And it reinforces a sense of inevitability and hopelessness in their life. And these are accurate statistics and they're important to discuss from like a policy perspective, but from a prevention perspective, from a public health perspective, they can often have the unintended consequence of creating a false normalization effect, making it seem more common than it truly is. And the truth is the vast, vast, vast majority of people who struggle with feeling suicidal do not go on to die by suicide. Recovery and resiliency are the true norm. My goodness, that feels really important to hear, especially right now. And I guess the idea is not being reactionary or crisis driven, but how do schools increase trust between students and Adults. There's lots of online resources, and we're going to post some of those on our website, including a Colorado-based mental health toolkit, and that's going to be distributed to all school districts. But it's really about changing norms in the school so that asking for help is seen as a sign of strength. Here's Hero Dahlman, and she says that could even mean examining the language that kids use. At my school, a lot of people say, I want to kill myself after, like, you know, oh my God, this final was so hard. I want to kill myself. So that language is all over the place. And so many people say it. I have to think that what happens in a classroom also sets the tone, though. Yeah, teachers have a ton on their plates. And this work requires thinking about how to build connectedness between students and trust in adults. But also other teacher skills make a difference. You know, are expectations clear in the classroom? Is the class well managed? Does it feel safe? That makes a big difference in how kids feel about themselves. That's an important point. We hear a lot about how stressful teaching is as well. Teachers' own well-being, I imagine, plays a role in students' mental health. Yeah. It's uh, student behavior is the number one reason that teachers leave the classroom. And any educator that works directly with traumatized children can develop what's called compassion fatigue. The vast majority of teachers uh, report that they feel physically and emotionally exhausted at the end of the day. This impacts children's mental health. Nancy Lever is the co-director of the National Center for School Mental Health. If your teachers are stressed, they're more likely to be sarcastic, respond more negatively to students. And this, I thought, was amazing when they actually measured the cortisol rates in students. Students who were were led by a teacher who was feeling overwhelmed 
had higher higher stress levels, the higher higher cortisol rates, which is you know remarkable. Wow! So it strikes me that there are many warning signs, other than irritability and outbursts in class, that may indicate signs of mental health troubles. Yeah, if you have a mental health disorder, you're three times more likely to be absent or tardy, 80% more likely to score below the mean in reading, math, and writing. And 10% of kids who drop out can be attributed to them having a mental health issue. You know, other things, difficulty concentrating in class and, and being depressed or anxious really disconnects kids from school. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine on behavioral health inside classrooms. These days, analog is cool. Think about rocketing sales of vinyl. But typewriters, really? Yes, says CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf. There may be no spell check or the ease to attach your file to an email. Yet there's still something so satisfying about tapping away on a typewriter. Denver's Stories on Stage and Buntport Theater give a hats off to the typewriter in a new show next month. A Typewriter Revolution features poems and prose written on, for, and about this antiquated mechanical contraption. Stories on Stage artistic director Anthony Powell says modern technology often leaves him scratching his head. So when he came across articles about people returning to the typewriter, he was intrigued by the romanticism of it. Some of the nostalgia, I think, is probably well-placed, and some of it may be misplaced. But on the other side of that kind of golden nostalgia is a kind of anger. Such as? I'm done with computers, and I want my privacy back, and I'm going to type everything. And uh, I think that the two kind of go nicely together, two sides of the same coin. The performance is January 12th at Sioux Teatro in Denver. But starting today, Stories on Stage and Buntport are asking for you to join in this typewriter revolution. There are typewriters at the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Colfax and at the Park Hill Library, where you can type up your own poem or short story. And Buntport actors might end up performing your work on stage during the show next month. Everybody has a story to tell, and we're in the business of telling as many as we can. You can participate in Stories on Stage and Buntport Theater's A Typewriter Revolution for the next three weeks. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. I'm so curious where they get ribbons these days. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. <laughs>